Welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you for another hour of podcasting greatness on YouTube, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever other good podcasts are sold. This week, I am very happy to welcome Joe Walsh. Hi, Joe. Hey, Chris. Good to be with you, man. Excellent. So glad you are here. Now, Joe is a uh, politician, former politician, and conservative talk radio show host. I always mix those words up. And uh, all around, you know, pretty interesting, cool guy who I've been following on Twitter for a while now because he is somebody who, uh, as an actual GOP insider, somebody who was in Congress, did hold a post there for two years from 2011 to 2013, and has been uh, first on the Trump train, then got off the Trump train. And that's what I want to talk about because we have talked about the cult of Trump the personality, the cult of personality that has developed around him, develops around a lot of politicians, if we're being honest. But this is more. This is different. This is something very different. We do not see Ted Cruz's followers. We do not see um, Gavin Newsom's followers do a January 6th insurrection, right? And that's what we saw in the real world. And if, and if anything highlighted all of my warnings about Trump from 2016 forward, that was it. So now you have, you are a person who was, you know, fully on the inside on this. What's, you know, where do you come from on this in terms of how did you support him as a politician or, you know, philosophically, what was, what were your views about that as a supporter? Um, because, you know, there's, a, everybody's a racist who supports Trump and everybody's a this and everybody's a that. What, what was your take on it? So, Chris, I, I have an unusual road, and I don't know anybody else who's been on my journey. Maybe there's a reason for that. Um, I was a pretty big deal in the conservative media world when Trump first ran in 16. Mm -hmm. I was on the radio all over the country, 100, 200 markets. I was on Fox News all the time. But I have a, a, an apology and a confession to make, and I've said this before in virtually every appearance. Uh, my great sin in 2016 is I didn't pay enough attention to Donald Trump. I really didn't. Mm. I didn't take him seriously. I thought he's just a fucking goof um, who might hire, hopefully will hire a couple good people. He wasn't Hillary Clinton. I understood, Chris, because, and I'm sure we'll get into this, because I, I come from Trump world, I understood why people supported him. They wanted disruption. I did, too. But I didn't pay enough attention to what a horrible human being Donald Trump was. And I've got to live with that because I voted for him in 16. I hear you on that. I, and it's interesting what you just said there, because I'm curious about that, that motivation. We wanted disruption. Well, I mean, we certainly got it. Do you agree with me that Hillary ran a so-so, barely competent campaign? Bernie Sanders, Chris, would have beaten Donald Trump in 2016. I agree. I, I agree. think a lot of Democrats would have. Yep. And, uh, I, you know, life's too short, so say what you think. Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton, a brilliant woman, sucked as a candidate. Exactly. She was the perfect foil for a bullshitter like Trump who said, I'm going to run against the system and burn down D.C. Um, our politics was broken. 
I, I've been, I, I was saying that 10 years ago when I was in Congress. Both political parties have real problems. Hillary was the poster child for our out-of-touch establishment politics. I, I agree with you completely on that. Um, and I had I had quite a few critical things to say about that during and after the 2016 campaign. And, you know, and I'm not even some, you know, it, it, understand, I am not a political pundit. I'm not even pretending to be. I came into this because, you know, you probably are familiar with the fact that I used to be a Scientologist and, you know, I come out of a cult. I mean, this is a destructive cult and it was hurting yeah. people. And, and I see in Trump, I see L. Ron Hubbard all over again, checks all the boxes. And I saw that and I went, well, I can't sit here and say nothing. And so I didn't enter into it from a political perspective. I entered into it from a, this human being is not good for any of us. <laughs> you know. Yeah. But it was, of course, a political conversation. So everybody made it about the politics. And, you know, Chris is a lefty and all that. And I lost friends and all the other crap that happened to everybody in 2016. Yeah. Yeah. So... Okay, so you're so this this business though about wanting to blow things up. Where do you what you know? I think that comes from what you just commented on about the broken system, the divisive, you know, rhetoric and the and the nonsense that's been going on for years that set the stage for this. Do you do you think that's that's accurate? Yeah. Look, Chris, um, life in America for a number of years has been changing and changing rapidly. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of Americans, and let's be frank, uh, a lot of older Americans, a lot of older white Americans have been scared to death for a while at the rapidity of change and how quickly life is changing. Yeah. Uh, the things they always held close and believed in and treasured and valued. Uh, neither political party was addressing these fears and these concerns, which again, Chris, to go back to 16, politically, the two most popular politicians in the country then were Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. Neither one belonged to either one of these two political parties. Right. They were both outsiders That's right. because both political parties kind of and I was there. I worked in Washington. You, you they ignored the fears that these folks had. I'm a Republican. Uh, I, I got a, a, no longer, but I got elected as a Republican. Chris, the Republican Party for years ignored the fears of their base and how quickly life was changing. And to your point, that's why when a cult figure like Trump came along in 16 and said, I'm going to solve all your problems, I'll build a fucking wall and make Mexico pay for it. They clung to him and that was it. Exactly. And we see this rhetoric uh, amplified, you know, ramped up by, you know, Laura Ingram and the and the Fox, you know, commentators and stuff with the paranoia about immigration and 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 clearly, you know, like, for example, this is this maybe this might be a great uh, example of this. Um how, you know, you arrive and you, you go to Washington, you were there for a couple of years, you know, you were doing the work. You, and what is that work on, a, on something like immigration? I mean, we're talking about a very complicated, multi-layered, yeah. years-long, decades-long, really, issue uh, of, of so many different vectors and, and misaligned forces and the path to citizenship being this landmine path that, that hardly anybody can walk very easily. 
you know, when you go to Washington and you're going to go, okay, I'm going to do something about this. What, what are you, you know, what's the reality of that? The reality, Chris, is uh, you really don't get a lot done there. Yeah. Um, and the reality is both sides are incentivized not to cooperate. Um, I was on the right. I was a Tea Party, so I was the extreme right. Yeah. And we were certainly incentivized on your issue of immigration and other issues not to reach across the aisle. The left is the same. Right. Um, we, we And a lot of it is political in that we draw congressional districts. Both parties draw these districts and they make them way more Democrat or way more Republican so you get people like Paul Gosar in Arizona and Marjorie Taylor Greene in Georgia uh, who respond to their base. So there's very little incentive to work together. Yeah, exactly. It seems systemic. It doesn't seem like it's it is. personality driven, but we make it personality driven. Well, it and, and Chris, that's a great point. The, uh, 40, 50 years ago, um, you would know who a freshman congressman was. I mean, I was there nine, 10 years ago, and I made a big name for myself, but that was even before Twitter. Uh, but, but even then, cable news and social media 10 years ago, um, once you realize as a congressman you can't get a lot done, then I realized all I have is a soapbox. I'm going to get on that soapbox and say the things I believe in. Right. It's 10 times worse now. Exactly. And this that's a really interesting point, because we all, us common folk, <laughs> you know, sort of look at congressmen, maybe maybe senators more than re than representatives in a realistic way. I mean, six years versus two. But I think we look at these people as the power brokers, as the people who really are getting, you know, are able to go there and get things done. But what you just said actually rings a little bit true in that you go there and you find out you're one amongst hundreds. You're one voice, you know, you're you're representing a bunch of people, but so are all of them. So, you know, it's it's the cacophony. It's the, ah, you know, here we go. It's the echo chamber. And, you know. And Chris, the other you, everything you just said is exactly right. Mm. From a congressperson's perspective, it's the exact same thing. When you go there. You think you're a really big deal. Right. And the longer you stay there, you think you're really, really important. <laughs> and there's a relationship between that, yep. believing you're a big deal and ignoring the common folk back home. And that happens as well. Big time. Big time. And I think that's where this out of touchness comes from, you totally. know, at, at a real fundamental level. And by the way, by the way. Yeah. You're right. Donald Trump is a horrible human being, maybe the worst human being who's ever lived. He's in the top five. But Trump connected to what you just said. Common people felt unheard. Right. Like D.C. is out of touch. Can you imagine, Chris, if and I believed we needed disruption back then. But can you imagine if we had a good disruptor instead of a bad disruptor? Exactly. Exactly. I think I think in a way we all want that. But 
you know, you look at a person like Trump and you just go, well, I didn't want that. So, you know, somebody becomes this, you know, be careful what you wish for sort of thing. Because we yeah. all, you know, it's funny. One of the principles about, and this is something I can speak to expertly, is one of the principles about people getting involved in cults or getting involved in these, these mass movements is that they are suffering from some kind of tra trauma or massive change in their life or there is some situation that they are really stressed about. And they want some help, you know, and then this person comes and says, well, I can help you. And they go, okay, sounds good. And then they're, then they're on the crazy train. Um, I think that, Trust, that that's is, so true. Yeah. That's so true. And, and because I come from the world of these folks, I mean, they were the same people who sent me to Congress 10 years ago. And 10 years ago, they were saying to me what you just said right there. Um, uh, oh, my God, we're not able to say Merry Christmas in America anymore. Oh, my God, we have millions of brown people coming across the border every day. Oh, my God, anybody can marry anybody. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. They were genuinely concerned and scared about all this change. Right. And instead of educating them, the politicians kind of just ignored them. Right. And the social media, you know, we just get into these fights. We just fight about it. You know, we just call each other names instead of trying to educate and help each other, you know. And, and, and Fox News amplified it all. And Rush time. Limbaugh amplified it all. Big time. Big time. Because there's nothing that makes money like fear. It's crazy, but it's true. So how, did you ever meet Trump, by the way? <laughs> well, here's a funny story. Yeah. I, I was supposed to. Um, but he he didn't he wouldn't let me. So mm -hmm. even though I voted for him in 16, Chris, I wasn't a huge supporter. He wasn't Hillary. Fine. Um, he blocked me on Twitter during that 2016 campaign really? because I criticized him more than I was supposed to, I guess. Ah. Um, but then after he got elected. I continued to kind of do the good Trump, bad Trump thing. I'd praise him when I thought he did something right, and I'd beat him over the head when he did something wrong. A bunch of us conservative radio people were invited to the White House early on in his administration to do our shows from the White House. Uh, Trump had his people disinvite me because even at that point, I wasn't a big enough sycophant, so I've never met him. There you go. Well, that loyalty thing is a real button with him. And, um, and it also happens to be a real big button with mafia dons and cult leaders. So, you know, uh, yeah. what do you make what you will of that? Yeah. Um, well, what point, you know, you're, you were at a point where you never went full Trump, right? You never went full enraptured with the man. So you were able to maintain some degree of perspective, but you were also, you know, and are, you know, pretty hardcore on the right. So how did, how did it start? How did the cracks really start showing up for you? You know, my experience is not that there's a make break point, that there's one thing that happens. It's usually a series of things, but you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth. How did it happen for you? Well, Chris, the end of the story is, as a conservative, once you publicly stand up in the public square and say, he's bad, evil, I'm taking him on, you're done professionally. Yeah. So that's the end of the story. How did I get there? Um, after he got elected, 
Uh, I'm a nationally syndicated radio guy on Fox News all the time. And my employers, Chris, are busting my balls every day and every week to fall in line. Oh, wow. It's not good. It's not good enough, I was told, to just uh, do the good Trump, bad Trump thing. I had to be like Sean Hannity and kiss his feet every day. Uh-huh. I couldn't do that. And I wouldn't do that. There were three points that turned me against him finally. Point number one was after he did win, and you may remember after he won and about a week or two weeks later, it became public, everything that Russia did to help him win. And right away, that jerk's reaction was not anger at Russia for what they did to help him win, but he got angry at our people because he didn't want anything to tarnish his victory. That's right. I began to turn on him after that. Data point number two, Chris, was after he won, I literally then began to pay attention to him every day. And I found out that he lies every time he opens his mouth. (laughs) Um, You and I may disagree politically on a lot of stuff. I can't support any politician who lies like he does. The final straw for me was... Helsinki, the summer of 2018, when he stood with Putin at that summit and in front of the world, he said, I believe Putin and not my own people. That was the greatest act of disloyalty I've ever seen in an American president. I went on my radio show that night and I said, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure he's not reelected. And my world pretty much began to crash after that. Yeah. And I, I believe me, I know how that feels. I know exactly how that feels. Yeah. You start getting the professional distancing and then, you know, people aren't returning your calls, et cetera. And then it all just kind of falls apart. Um, But I'm curious now because you seem to infer there that there was this movement within the right of, you know, you're going to conform now. You're going to comply. We're going to all fall in line with this. And that's interesting because it speaks to other powers at play. And I'm curious about how those powers work on a, on a, on a real fundamental, you know, on a day-to-day kind of level. Like, do you guys, like, how does the GOP, is the GOP, should I be talking about the GOP even as like the central leadership of this? Or is there some other figure at play here? It's a really good question. And again, I come at it from a unique angle because as a former congressman and then a presidential candidate, yeah. I literally took on Trump, hopeless. Um, but hey, I also good for come trying. Conservative, <laughs> I come from the conservative media world. Yeah. So both worlds were trying to, for three years, were trying to beat me down and keep me in line. And it's not an exaggeration. In the conservative media world, I mean, Fox News would pretty much tell you, Joe, if you don't fall in line, you're not going to be on anymore. So then I wasn't. Uh, My radio syndicator, Joe, if you don't praise him, uh, we're going to lose these advertisers and you're going to lose these markets and you're going to lose your radio show. And that happened. On the GOP side, I I, I mean, if I had a dollar for every Republican member of Congress who called me over the last three or four years and begged me to fall in line, I'd be a wealthy guy. They're also afraid of Trump, but they won't say that uh, publicly. Okay, and and when they're afraid of Trump, are they afraid because of the same reasons of what could happen to their career or are there other factors? It's not fear of Trump. It's, and I, I misspoke there. It's mm-hmm. fear of Trump's voters. 
Um, Chris, again, no surprise to you, but the vast majority of my former colleagues in Congress all agree privately with what I say about him publicly. They think he's a moron. They think he's an existential threat to the country. All of that. Wow. Um, They're afraid of his voters. He controls the cult. He controls the cult. They don't want to lose the voters. So they keep their mouths shut, believing that one day Trump will go away and they'll have his voters. Okay. And let's go ahead and, you know, there have been ad infinitum, ad nauseum analyses of the voting base and the and the population and percentages and all that. I don't want to rehash that conversation, but I am, but I would like to know from your perspective, um, you know, as somebody who has paid a great deal of attention to all the statistics and polling and all that kind of stuff, you know, you have, I'm pretty sure you're a lot more familiar with how to read that stuff than I am. Who are we talking about when we're talking about Trump's base? Who are these people and how many of them are they really? So, uh, again, Chris, it's a great question. And I'm in a unique position because I'm not an original never Trumper. I come from the world of the GOP base. They were my people. (laughs) I left them. Um, And generally... We're talking about middle-aged and older white people, if you want to generalize, okay. um, who who have all seen their country. Uh, it, it's like they, they'd love to go back to 1954 America. Ah. Uh, two, gen, two genders, and boys love girls, and girls love boys, and you can say Merry Christmas, and we are a, uh, a Judeo-Christian country, and um, all, all the rest where life was simpler, right? And American cars were American-made cars, all of that. This, I, I, by the way, I still hear from thousands of them every day because I, I'm in the conservative talk radio world trying to talk to them every day and put facts in front of them. Yeah. We're primarily talking about middle-aged, older white people who are scared about where America's going. Okay. And... And it's interesting because when you talk to the left or about the left, the image that comes to mind for me as a more leftist than rightist is um, younger, you know, anxiety ridden or concerned about future, right? Very, very upset over, you know, conditions and situations, uh, lack of health care, for example, you know, these kind of jobs, et cetera. Um, very, very concerned about future. So it's interesting the generational gap here is really the classic conservative, liberal, progressive war, you know? And and to that point, Chris, and this is why Fox News and the world I come from, the conservative media world is so dangerous because that split, what you just articulated, younger Americans are concerned about economic issues, quality of life issues, healthcare and all the rest. The GOP base is more concerned about cultural issues. That's right. Uh, culture, the, the culture war. Yes. Um, gays, guns, abortion, all of that. God, all of that. Exactly. And, and, uh, and you know, to their discredit, you know, the left kind of tosses that off and thinks that's all, you know, kind of no big deal. And, uh, and are very worked up about, you know, how change is good and how change needs to happen and is inevitable and, and how you dare you try to stop it. And so we get this inevitable clash. And normally, we think about the, that clash, that yin-yang 
of conservative progressive as a good thing, as the conflict that creates, you know, that 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 our constitution was based on, that our whole government system was based on, was was conflict. Out of conflict will emerge good things. But it seems that the that the situation is that somehow the rhetoric or somehow the attitudes about this or our views about it have become so incendiary, so toxified that we can't talk anymore. And that seems to be where the cult aspect of this comes into play strongest. Like, why can't we talk? Well, because we're so consumed by these values or ideas that they are more important than people are. And and that's and and I think you lose the plot when that happens. Do you want to comment on how you've observed that happen, or how we might how we might deal with that? It's so funny, Chris. Even before Trump got elected, back when I was in Congress, I would say, and I still believe this. I believe we're living through a revolutionary time in America, mm. and I was saying that eight to nine years ago. I think the country right now. Uh, has not been this divided, I really believe this, since the Civil War. Um, And it was that way before Trump. And by the way, you know, Trump didn't divide us. Trump's an an ugly product of the divide. That's right. That's all. Um, We're so tribal. Uh, This, what you and I are doing right now, Chris, most Americans don't do. We don't speak across the divide. We all live in our little holes. We either, every night we watch MSNBC or we watch Fox News, baby. We don't want to get informed. We want our beliefs uh, reinforced. And then on top of that tribalism, we have one side now that is, that is cultish. And I put the number at 40 to 50 to 60 million Americans Wow. Who are living in an alternative reality. Wow. That's scary. That's actually very scary. I have uh, I have wondered for some time about the numbers because you can, you know, you can massage statistics all different kinds of ways. Um, but I, I, I take what you say seriously um, because I think you are in a position to know better than a lot of other people. Uh, and that's 70, uh, that is mm-hmm. 74 million people voted for him. I I, based on the data I've seen and based on what I hear every day Mm -hmm. and I hear every day from hundreds, sometimes thousands of them every day, uh, 80 to 90 percent of that 74 million is is just not connected with reality right now. They believe they believe the election was stolen. They do not believe Joe Biden won fair and square. Chris, they don't believe 70, 80 percent of Republican Party voters do not believe January 6th was that big of a deal. Wow. It's it is it's it's a testament to the power of propaganda. Is is yeah. really what I think that is. You know, it's it's powerful. It is it's almost a weapon of mass destruction and in the wrong hands. And and I don't just single out Fox News in that particular regard, right? I have I have things to say about all cable news. Um, and speaking of, okay, so now in terms of owning some of this, now you have you have gone on record as saying some of your statements contributed to the problem, and and you have made some pretty you know inflammatory statements in the past that you've that you've addressed, and we don't have to take those up one by one. But I'm curious about your view now as to how you felt you contributed, and 
Um, and sure, there's the mea culpa and the working, you know, now sort of thing to try to undo some of that. But how do you think what we're doing is enough? Do we need more? And if more, what more do we need to, to, to lower the temperature? Uh, well, we do. I, I, I unfortunately, Chris, think it's too late for a, a big chunk of the Republican base. Mm. Um, how did we get here? How did we get to where the Republican Party base is radicalized? Um, even 10 years ago when I was in Congress, Marjorie Taylor Greene would have been considered a wackadoodle. Chris, 10 years ago when I was in Congress, you probably thought I was crazy. Um, <laughs> I, 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 look, I look tame compared to her. Yep. Um, now, I, I've, I've blamed the Republican Party establishment for letting this happen because they ignored the base for years. Right. Well, then in 2010, along came the Tea Party people like me. And we riled up that base. Um, and and look, I've been very outspoken. Uh, and of the 100,000 things I've tweeted, boy, you and I could find 700 tweets where you'd say, what the hell were you thinking, Joe? And, and, and there'd be plenty of those that I'd apologize for. But broadly speaking, I apologize because I would get so caught up in the things I believed in that I'd go over my skis and I would engage in ugly personal politics. Mm -hmm. And I would get these folks riled up. That helped lead to Trump. And I've got to live with that. Makes sense. Makes total sense. Is um is Ted Cruz really like he comes across? <laughs> He's a jerk. He, he is such a jerk. <laughs> well, and the funny thing, Chris, is uh and I he's he's not well liked by uh, most Republicans. Um, yeah. So is is there a factor? I've I've been I. This is pure conjecture on my part, but I, I you wonder how the sausage gets made. You know, you really wonder how things go on behind the scenes sometimes. When like having been an insider, having been doing the work, and then watching how it's portrayed on the media must be a weird experience. How how disparate is it? How bad is the truth versus the perception? Um, it's it's a shame, Chris, because our media does such a disservice. And again, I go back to how tribal we are. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I don't know, chicken or egg. Our media reflects that, and, mm -hmm. and or our media pushes it. But there is. Again, there's no in when you are there in Congress, mm -hmm. you are every day you're supposed to be working. A, you spend most of your time raising money and getting political instead of doing the job of a congressman. Mm -hmm. But B, every day you're bombarded by things in the media and elsewhere pulling you to your side and your extreme. And, and this happens with both. And, and the media only propels this. Um, I, I wish people could see that at work, that the average member of Congress really can do better not getting things done. Interesting. And, and just being a mouth or a voice for a viewpoint. Right. I've got a lot of respect for AOC. I think she's brilliant. I think she's got I, 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 she's got a real future. I disagree with her politically. Um, she became an instant star. 
not because of anything she did, but every member of Congress now has an individual platform. You can go there and you're a free agent now. AOC doesn't have to fall in line behind Pelosi or Democratic leadership. She can go right to the people and do her videos and become a bigger deal than Pelosi. So she's incentivized not to fall in line behind the party apparatus. That's interesting because it makes because it because it leads my next question or next area of uh, uh, of questioning here, which is how do we, you know, start holding some feet to the fire, some accountability? And it seems a little difficult because if party leadership can't even exert control over their own party members and we sort of have this, I don't know, I've sort of had this idea of, you know, of, of structure and and leadership and, you know, talking points and marching orders and stuff maybe being issued. But maybe I have an overblown view of how organized it is behind the scenes. Maybe it's a little bit more chaotic than I imagine. It's uh, utterly chaotic right now, Chris. Yeah. Uh, people would be, the average American would be blown away by how dysfunctional uh, Congress is, by how dysfunctional Washington is. Um, and again, it used to be uh, you'd go there as a freshman congressman, right? there. It, it was like you were joining a company at the entry level. You'd fall into line. You'd be put on certain committees. Leadership could hold sway over you. But then leadership, at my time, John Boehner was the speaker. Boehner could sit down with Pelosi. They knew they had most of their caucus in line. Okay, let's horse trade. Let's let's horse trade on immigration. Yep. Yep. Now, Pelosi and and Kevin McCarthy have very little control over their own members. Interesting. Very interesting. And and how quickly it turns. You know, Congress yes. historically, Congress has been quite an interesting little study in itself. If you if you follow Ken Burns documentaries. You know. Well, yeah. No. And, and look, when I went there, Chris, I. Uh, I term limited myself. I turned down all my benefits. I turned down my pension. I turned down my beautiful health care. Wow. And I slept on the floor in my office because I wanted to come home all the time to talk to my voters. There was a day in Congress where members of Congress lived in D.C. And some of the old guys will tell you that things worked better back then because at the end of the work week, Republicans and Democrats stayed in D.C. They lived in D.C. They got to know each other better. Right. Maybe there's something to that, but I just, I recoiled against the notion of a professional politician, but we got to find some sort of middle ground. I, I agree with you. And I, I too have issues with professional politicians. When I, you know, when Mitch McConnell's been in office longer than my wife has been alive, I, I have to question the system. You know, I think that's, I think there's something wrong there. Chuck Grassley in Iowa, I think he got elected the year after the Civil War ended. Yeah, I mean, exactly. he's been there. And, and yeah. Chris, Dianne Feinstein? Yeah. Come on. Yeah. 87 years old? Exactly. Exactly. This is it had nothing to do with, uh, with, with party on that one. I think term limits are absolutely vital. Because um, it seems to incentivize gridlock. It seems to incentivize ineffectiveness rather than effectiveness. You sort of just go there and plot along and do some work and do a lot of fundraising and, you know, glad hand and keep enough people happy that that you're not, you know, such a hot potato that you can get reelected. And then you just kind of 
keep going. Keep right. going. And you nibble around at the edges. Nothing yeah. gets done. But you're you're important and you're raising money and you're on Fox or you're on MSNBC. So life is good. Chris, think about this. We have not updated or modernized or repaired our infrastructure in this country since the 1950s, early 60s. Right. Every Republican and every Democrat knows that our roads and bridges are falling apart. But even an issue like that uh, can't get done like that when there should be automatic bipartisan support. Exactly. Exactly. The infrastructure week has been a joke for the last five years. Um, okay. So, so yeah, we got some issues here. We got some real issues. We got bottom level issues. We got top level issues. How, you know, how do we, how do we turn this boat? Do we, there's an effort I know right now, for example, to try to maybe get another party going. Uh, is that, is that viable? Is that real? I mean, to me, it's a, it's a, it, it's hopeful. I don't know. So, um, and I'm part of a lot of these discussions, but I'm in the minority. If, uh, I wrote a piece a few months ago, if it were up to me, man, we'd plant a flag and we'd have a, a brand new political party tomorrow, it would be a radically centrist, common sense, get shit done kind of a party. Right. Um, we're, Chris, we're at a, we've never been here before. This is a very rare moment in the history of this young country uh, where there's an opportunity for something new. The Republican Party, one of our two major political parties is a cult. It is a shrinking, dying cult. I believe the other major political party, the Democratic Party, uh, continues and will continue to move to the left. Mm -hmm. Most Americans are here. So there's an opportunity to create something new. You know it's incredibly difficult to do. Yep. But if not now, when? Well, that's pretty much my question. Um, how do you know with the thousands that you talk to and the people that you interact with, how do you see um, how do you see us doing it? How do we appeal to these folks? Are they even is there any message that they could listen to or hear from an opposing side or from a you know opposition that they that would it all connect with them? So this is kind of your, this is your bailiwick. How mm. do you talk to members of a cult? Yeah. Um, well, I think part of it is who is the messenger? So they know I'm one of them because I come from their cult. Yep. And even though I oppose their cult leader, they know I'm not a moderate and I'm not a Democrat. I'm still a proud Tea Party libertarian conservative. Yep. So I, I don't think you, Chris, could talk to him. I don't think Chris Cuomo on CNN could talk to him. Right. I don't think any Democrat, I don't think Mitt Romney or John Kasich, any moderate Republican can talk to them. It's got to be messengers who come from their world. And Chris, all I try to do every day, and, and I'm not an expert, is just put little kernels of truth in front of them yep. repetitively every day. The election wasn't stolen. The Trump campaign never proved any fraud. And what I have found is if you just keep doing that every day, put basic truths in front of them, you can peel off some people. You got it. That's exactly right. That's it's it's called seed planting. And we just, oh. you just keep doing it. That's right. Because those things will grow. 
The other thing, and this might be useful for you um, in terms of how you approach or talk to people who are in a cult mindset, is you can helpfully educate them or you can kind of give them little nuggets about other cults. Oh. Right? Not that you're not in a cult. Right. But look at those Scientologists over there, <laughs> those guys. Right. But you point out little bits in the behavior, the black and white thinking, the echo chamber, the, you know, the the riling up of the emotion over facts, the, um, uh, the, the, the you know, the us versus them. Right. The ostracization, the, the shunning, you know, that the families are being are being disconnected, things like that. You bring that stuff up, but you bring it up with those guys over there. I've also found, Chris, that I have better success with younger cult members. Mm. Um, I, uh, I think we've lost a lot. I think many of the base in their 60s, 70s and above, we may never reach. Mm. Um, but like what happened to Liz Cheney last week. Yeah. And when I put the basic facts in front of them that Liz Cheney was a real conservative, just like you. She was let go because she opposed Trump. Elise Stefanik, who replaced her, may be the most liberal Republican in, in the House. And here's their voting record. Uh, basic facts. Um, and I found younger GOP voters responded more favorably to that. Excellent. That's a great point. And I think you're absolutely right. But do you think that, I mean, my, the first thing that comes to my mind is, well, are these older folks the ones who have Fox News on all day? Yeah. Right. You know. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. Because you're, you, you know, one message is never going to be powerful enough to counter the onslaught of messaging that goes on when you have Fox News or, let's be honest, CNN or MSNBC on all day. You know, because you're just subliminally taking it all in. I mean, it's Getting not like vaccinated will save your life. And then they turn on Tucker Carlson every night yep. who says, why the hell should we get vaccinated? Exactly. Exactly. And these are in the primetime spots now. It's not even they're not even pretending to be news. It's just commentary, as, you know, infotainment. Yeah. And this, I, this is why I look at media and the, the major cable news media as, as, a, as a source of problem in addition to looking at it as part of the machine. I look at it as also, you know, very, very heavy um, causative agent in the, in the picture. Chris, you're right. And here's, here's the basic takeaway. Um, we, are, we are, people don't realize, and maybe it's because I'm in this world every day and I've been in this world every day for 10 years, and I'm getting old and gray, Chris. I think I may need to retire one day soon. <laughs> but people don't realize how damn divided this country really is. Yeah. And you're right to point out the media because they, they expand that divide every day. If this country stays this divided, we will not solve big problems, climate, immigration, healthcare. And China will take us to school, man, this next century if we stay divided. I could not agree with you more on that. I know that you and I have different ideas about the solutions to these problems, but I think we are completely on the same page as to what the problem is. You Amen. know, yeah. And, yeah. A, and, a, and a house divided is definitely a house that will fall if we don't get our, 
our collective crap together on this. Now, hey, hey, Chris, I yeah. will say this, and then I'll shut up. If if you were starting America from scratch right now, the United States of America, and you took our fifty states as they are right now, and you said, "Let's start a country." Get mad at me if you want, but I don't think you'd make us into one country. I think no, it I think would you're be right. more like Europe. If you took us right. as we are today, I could see where you might split us up into six to seven different sovereign nations. That's right. I actually have. I've actually said that, and and there have been books written about that because yes. geographically, culturally, right, even historically, very different. Very different. Pacific Northwest couldn't be more different from the old South, you know, from the from the from the Northeast, yeah. from the West Coast, right, left coast, <laughs> which is where I come from. So, and and then you have the Midwest and et cetera, et cetera. So you could divide this up in very interesting ways, and I think you're right. And yet here we are in this great experiment, this great melting pot, and we're trying to make a go of it. And Right now, we're not real. We are struggling. This is a struggle period. And if we don't figure this out, you know, and, and I, I just am going to keep preaching that it is communication. It is, it is reaching across the aisle. It is having these conversations. Uh, Chris, amen. The analogy would be we are a married couple who may be done um, and the couple needs therapy. Yes. America needs therapy. And the therapy is... Let's talk across the aisle to see if we've got enough common ground to stay married. Um, but but we got to have that merit marital therapy, uh, otherwise this this marriage is going to end. Exactly. What do you think it would take, really real now, for the leadership, the people who really do make the decisions here? And I don't even pretend to know who these people are. I see this represented by people like Mitch McConnell. Uh, McCarthy, Pelosi, right, Schumer. I mean, these are the figures that we're shown. I don't know who's actually making the decisions in the GOP or in the DNC or how how the how that process goes. Regardless of who the personalities are, what decision making needs to happen at that level to change to and could decision making happen at that level that could change the situation? So the leadership of each side, and it's it's those names you mentioned, and powerful, uh, f- uh, uh, wealthy interest on each side. Yeah. Um, the leadership has got to move beyond just thinking short term. I can tell you right now, Chris, on the Democratic and the Republican side, the people I speak with, all they're thinking about is 2022. The elections, uh, taking back the House. They don't, pardon my language, Chris, they don't fucking think beyond 2022. And Kevin McCarthy, I served with him. He has no philosophy. He is a hollow man. He has no core. He is a political animal. And all he is thinking about is taking back the House in a year and a half. They do not think beyond that. And as long as that's the case... We're in trouble. Yeah, because that mirrors Trump and how he thinks. You know, it's all in the moment. It's all what satisfies or serves now or in the immediate future. And there's no real long-term planning or thinking or strategizing. We just can't operate that way anymore. We can't afford to. The unique thing now, Chris, is the the Trump factor. 
Um, so, so every systemic problem you and I just identified is compounded by the fact that a horrible, horrible human being is the leader of one of these parties. Right. Exactly. Uh, and, and, he, and he will be that way until he's gone. Right. Exactly. Because we can't He'll be that way from jail, Chris. <laughs> yeah, I get it. I get it because it's not uh, it's not I mean, you know, a, a lot of people might might have a problem with this analogy, but it's not entirely dissimilar to the FLDS, you know, being run from jail. Right. Or if yeah. David Miscavige went to went to prison, he'd be running Scientology from jail. That's what would happen. Yeah. You know? uh, oh, man. Um, <laughs> I mean, well, look, man, you invited me on and. If you invited me on because you wanted this dark Irishman to give you some hope, <laughs> that was your mistake. I, uh, I I taught American government. I taught American history. Yep. This has been my life. I think we are at a dark, dark moment. I mean it. And it's going to be bumpy and ugly, I believe, for quite some time. I, I could not agree with you more. And I, and I am doing my best, and I know you are too, which is actually what – what really prompted me to reach out to you in the first place is we're doing our best to, to look at, you know, okay, we own a little bit of this and we have to be part of the solution to this problem now. Uh, we, and, and let's be clear, because we all own this. This is, this is us. You know, what we're talking about is our system. This isn't somebody else's system. This is America. This is us. You're right. I mean, j just look at look at this past year. Um, uh, a, a virus came to our shores, a once in a lifetime pandemic. It's it's like it's like the nation was put into wartime footing. We were at war against the virus. But my God, this country couldn't even unite around a, a, a virus like everything became a fight. Everything became divisive, yeah. wearing a mask, social distancing. Now, admittedly, again, we had the worst possible person to be in the White House when this thing hit. But even a pandemic divided us. Yeah, it's pretty wild. It, I mean, it's just unthinkable. I mean, from, from when you and I were growing up, we definitely had different ideas of how, how the future was going to look. Um, I'm curious about the most extreme elements of the, the, the Trump side of things, right? Because you have this big base of people. I'm sorry, but I refuse to believe that there are 60 million QAnon followers. I do believe that there are 60 million Trump supporters. But I think that the subset of, you know, if we're going to look at the Venn diagram of like how many people are following actively this QAnon nonsense and and are talking and thinking with revolution or insurrection or treason, I think we're talking about a significantly smaller group of people. But that's really conjecture on my part. What's your view on that? So, Chris, here's my here's my crude analogy. Yeah. Um, uh, no, uh, no, no similarity to, but it's almost like Islamic terror, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not every Muslim on this planet is a terrorist. Right. It, we're talking about a very small subset, right, when we talk about Islamic terrorists. Yes. But then when you expand beyond the actual terrorist in Islam, 
there's a large chunk of Muslims in the world who either are okay with what the terrorists do yep. or cheer them on or, you know, kind of whatever. Yeah, they're ambivalent um, about it. Same thing in the Republican Party. Yeah. There's a much smaller set of actual QAnon believing, insurrectionist supporting crazies. But man, oh man, Chris, the the Republican base, 30, 40, 50 million are, well, yeah, I don't believe in QAnon, but I I understand why, why they do what they do. And I understand why people attacked our capital. I would never attack our capital, but I understand why they did it. That's the problem. The 30 to 40, 50 million who aren't necessarily opposed to the QAnon crazies. Right. They consider them base. Right. They consider them justifiable grievances or something like that. And this seems to be the the reasoning or the reason rather why Trump seems to to be Teflon Don. I mean, just nothing sticks to him. Well, everything (laughs) sticks to him. But his followers got no problem with it. And think about that word, Chris, followers. When I grew up, I, like I, you, you and I probably differed. I went to college with Reagan and I adored Reagan, man. And I was a Reagan supporter, but I was a supporter, not a follower. Right. So I would criticize Reagan and I've criticized Republican presidents before. Only with Trump in my lifetime do we have this notion of followers. Um and they love the fact that he's almost they 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 either don't care or they love the fact that he's a corrupt bad guy because right. to simplify it chris what i hear every day is he fights i don't care that he lies he fights i don't care that he's a shit he fights i don't care that he didn't pay his taxes he fights i that that's at the end of the day that's the response i get more than anything that is so interesting and and fighting meaning he's fighting the deep state or he's fighting other politicians he's punching punching cnn every day joe he's punching pelosi every day joe you pick their enemies he fights man he fights got it got it okay and that's this kind of puts in the light a little bit behind uh if Ted Cruz has any PR strategy, it's doing his best to try to imitate Trump and failing miserably. <laughs> he doesn't fight. He goes to Cancun. Yeah, That's no, right. It, That's t- right. Ted Cruz is a... Well, he's a coward. There, there is no... The, uh, I'll tell you, the, the governor of Florida, who I know, Ron DeSantis, mm-hmm. understands what I'm telling you. Mm-hmm. And he's no dummy. Unlike Trump, Trump's a real dumb human being. Mm-hmm. Ron DeSantis is not. He's a smart guy. And DeSantis has figured out that the base just wants a fighter. And he does a lot of this. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, yeah, because you, yeah, you need this kind of explanation sometimes. Because I tell you, you know, the divide's not just from the right. I mean, we on the left are sitting here watching this and just going, what the hell? We cannot get our wits around what could motivate some of this activity to go on? And so I need these explanations sometimes of like, oh, okay, fighter, got it. Okay, that actually kind of makes a little bit more sense. Than- it do- yeah, it doesn't, none of Trump's innate corruptness bothers his supporters. Right. Uh, as long as he's fighting their cause. 
Chris, he's going to make this a Christian nation again. I don't care if he has to kill a thousand people to do it. Right. He's going to he's going to build a wall around this country. I don't care if he has to ban CNN to do it. Right. That's where they're coming from. I think there has been a misestimation. I think you're exactly right that I think there has been a misestimation of the size of the of the problem of the um, of the of the divide. I guess I could it, say it, it's and Chris, I'd say. Remember, a lot of Trump supporters don't consider themselves Republicans. Um, uh, mm. Everybody, a lot of people who live outside of the Denver's and the Chicago's and the New York cities, and they live out in the hinterlands, man. Uh, they don't identify with either party. They identify with Trump because they feel ignored. Uh, the Democrats better pay attention to this. That's right. Um, and again, you and I uh, and a lot of people now call me woke Joe Walsh. Wokeness is fine, but don't shove wokeness down our throats. Right. And when the left tends to do that, it turns off a lot of people in the middle that should be voting Democrat. You're absolutely right. And that's the thing, actually. That was one of my departure points from left-wing thinking was was the cultic woke nonsense, you know, and I've done whole podcasts on that because that's just as crazy and just as divisive. Um, so we're not doing ourselves any favors with all the name calling and all of the, you know, rhetoric. The, they're all a bunch of racists and this and that and the other thing. Um, is there any messaging that, or sorry, not messaging, but do you think there's anything Trump could do that would ruin it for him? Um, no, there's nothing he can do that will ruin it for him. Okay. There's nothing he can do. What can happen to him that will ruin it for him? There are only two outcomes. He dies or he goes to prison. If he dies, and in either case, Chris, mm -hmm. Trumpism has moved, it's metastasized beyond Trump. Right. If he's in prison, he'll still retain a big chunk of the base. If he's if he leaves this planet, uh, Trumpism is still kind of, it's a big, it's still a big chunk of the Republican Party base. And it would take years of principled conservatives to move away from Trumpism. Right. And I think we know how realistic that possibility is. So. <laughs> I don't think it's yeah. going to happen. I get it. Which again goes back to, I really believe it's time to start something new. I do too. And I, and I get what you're saying there. Well, Joe, I, I, I know we need to start wrapping up now, so I'm going to move towards doing that. I, I really appreciate your time, man. Hey, I love it, Chris. And I promise you, I made you a promise. We'll do it again. We'll, We'll have a, a number two of this, I promise. Excellent, because I, I have so many questions about Mitch McConnell. <laughs> <laughs> hey, he's one of the savviest politicians you would ever meet, man. I do not doubt that. I don't think you survived that many decades in Washington without being the top player. So yeah. I, I agree. Okay, well, that being said, I am going to put links to your show and all that in the description section for people. I am sure they know who you are, um, but just so they can connect up with your show. And again, thank you very much for taking the time, and I look forward to talking to you in the future. Chris, I enjoyed it. I'll help you promote. Let's do it again. Thanks, man. Big time. All right. Bye-bye. 
And uh, folks out there, you like the show, you like what I'm doing, support me on Patreon uh, or, of course, through PayPal. And, of course, please do like and share this podcast all over the Internet because that's how we grow the channel. All right. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye.